coming up next on the Passion Struck Podcast. But if you apply to a job and you don't do the proper research before an interview, that's that's a double red flag right there in my book. Put in the time because you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And you want to be prepared with questions. The biggest regret that I've seen from job seekers are the ones where I have good conversations with them and they didn't think they needed to research. They think they knew all about it already. And then at the end, like, damn, I wish I really like put in the time because now after talking to you, I really like what I'm hearing here. You know, they kick themselves for not doing the work up front. Welcome visionaries, creators, innovators, entrepreneurs, leaders, and growth seekers of all types to the Passion Struck Podcast. Hi, I'm John Miles, a peak performance coach, multi-industry CEO, Navy veteran, and entrepreneur on a mission to make passion go viral for millions worldwide. And each week I do so by sharing with you an inspirational message and interviewing high achievers from all walks of life to unlock their secrets and lessons to becoming passion struck. The purpose of our show is to serve you, the listener, by giving you tips, tasks, and activities you can use to achieve peak performance and pursue the passion-driven life you have always wanted to have. Now, let's become passion struck. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Passion Struck Podcast. And thank you, each and every one of you, for returning every week to listen and learn to live better, be better, and impact the world. And if you're new to the show or you would like to introduce it to a friend or family member, we now have starter packs. These are collections of your favorite episodes organized by topic, which gives you a great introduction to everything that we do here on the show. Just go to passionstruck.com slash starter packs to get started. And if you haven't been there before, please also check out our YouTube channel at John R. Miles, where we have over 225 different videos available to provide you inspiration. Today, we have an amazing guest, Adam Posner, who's the founder and president of NHP Talent Group and host of the podcast, a top career podcast. And today we talk about his career that started in advertising that found him working at VaynerMedia, his dream job with Gary Vee. How being fired from this dream job and the coaching that he got from Gary Vee changed his career trajectory and inspired him to get into recruiting and to create his podcast. We talk about trends that are happening today in recruiting and how it's becoming the age of the employee. Adam gives advice to job seekers on how to approach a cover letter and resume and so many other topics. We also discuss both of our podcasts and reveal some of our secrets to success. Thank you for choosing Passion Struck and choosing me to be your host and guide on your journey to living a no regrets life. Now, let that journey begin. So excited to have Adam Posner on the Passion Struck Podcast. Adam, welcome to the show. John, thanks for having me. appreciate it. Well, I think uh, a, a guest of both of our shows kind of brought us together, um, Amy Maylin. Uh, so I was happy she did that because um, I think what you're doing on the podcast, which is uh, your, your podcast, is, is really awesome. And I've thanks. gotten a chance to listen to a number of the episodes. So nice job. I, I appreciate it. And, and likewise, I think it's really important in the in the podcasting community to really embrace the concept of collaboration over competition. Right? We're not competing with each other. There's plenty of ears, eyes out there for everybody. And that's how we help each other grow, right? We, we raise each other up um, and we introduce each other to each other's audiences. And that's really what collaboration is all about. And that's something I really love in the podcasting space. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I haven't had on that many people who have their own shows, especially one as successful as yours. So, you know, at, towards the end, we can get into a little bit of that too. And maybe Always compare some podcasting. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe compare stories on uh, what's worked and what hasn't. But um, I thought a really good starting point would be um, to take you back kind of before you're in your career that you're in now. You and I had kind of a similar beginning in that we were both in the corporate world doing that corporate dance. Um, and we both reached a point where we had our dream job. But for the audience, can you give them some background on, uh, because you were in the advertising marketing space and kind of that path. Um, and then we'll explore that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. No worries at all. I think uh, it's important to share the backstory and, and anything when I'm interviewing a guest too, because I think it's important to understand where people come from 
to really see where they're going here. And, and my career, born and raised New Yorker, um, you know, I always knew in, in college, even in high school, that I was going to get into some kind of business advertising marketing track. And, and that's exactly what I did. So after graduating, I uh, jumped right into advertising in, in the New York area, got a job in a B2B food service agency, which was great, really planted my roots there. Uh, and then over the course of 15 years, I uh, spent time at various ad agencies, marketing agencies, uh, spent a good amount of time at Sirius XM satellite radio right around the time that Howard Stern came on board over there. And that really, looking back at it now, I mean, that really shaped the the style and influence of me as a podcaster. I'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, and then I went back to Adland and I landed over at VaynerMedia working for the great Gary Vaynerchuk. And this is 2014, uh, John. And at that time, I thought it was, you know, the Holy Grail. Uh, grass is greener on the other side, whatever freaking analogy you want to use there. Um, but I learned pretty quickly within the first few weeks, actually, that it wasn't something wasn't right. And ultimately, you know, there, there's a couple of factors here. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I was not set up for success. I was not set up um, to be successful in the role. And it was my responsibility and fault looking back on it for not raising my hand earlier, for not trying to course correct it. And then it kind of went downhill pretty quickly. And um, I didn't handle some interpersonal situations well. I mean, I was a very different person than I am now. Uh, I was going through a lot of changes on my life at the time. We went from living in the city, we were buying a house, there was all that pressure. And I let all that pressure get to me. And I wasn't able to do the job that they hired me for. And ultimately, I lost my job. And it was, it was a tough one, John. Um, 35 at the time, as I mentioned, and it was like kind of this early midlife crisis where I had to really pause for a second and say, listen, is this what I want to be doing? Is this what I'm good at? Is this what I want to continue to do for the next you know, 20, 30 years of my life? And the answer was no. And it caused me a great moment of introspection and really to take accountability for my losses, really say, you know what? Stop blaming others. It's time to look in the mirror and say, what do you do well? What do you not do well? And what do you want to do moving forward? Yeah, well, I think that's a good backdrop. And I thought I would share for the audience. Um, I had a similar situation. Um, I had been working at Lowe's for a number of years, really loved Lowe's, the culture, um, but decided it was time for a move. And at about that time, I got a call completely out of the blue from a friend of mine um, at Egon Zender saying um, somehow or another, Michael had heard of me mm. and Dell was really interested in me coming to join. So Long story short, um, eight rounds of interviews later, um, about three months, maybe four months later, um, I, I finally get to my last interview, and it's with this uh, president of the consumer business, Ron Gerrigs. He's the inventor of the razor. Um, if you remember that the phone, phone, the phone, the, the phone. Razor phone. Yeah, yeah. He was he was at um, Motorola, and that was his claim to fame, but. Brilliant guy, but I will never forget this interview. So I walk into this conference room and there is Ron Gehrig's completely drenched in sweat. He had just gone for a run um, in the hot Texas sun. Oh, and and he, he does an explicit, explicit, uh, you know, what the F are you here for? And I'm, <laughs> and I, and I had a moment to decide, I, I said, I'm here for an F and job. <laughs> and if you don't like me, I don't, Give a crap because I'm sick of this process at Dell. And needless you really, you to said, say, yes, how'd that go? He, it, I spent in, spent about 25 minutes with them. I walked out, and the HR person who was with me said, "What did you do?" And and I go, I was just completely brutally honest with them. He goes, "You're the first person that's lasted more than three minutes with him." And with him. And before I landed on the way home, I had a job offer. Um, that is, but that I, is, but that's not, that's if, I mean, if I could tell from a couple of minutes of us interacting, I feel like that's not really your personality to come out of the gate like that. What, what was it that kind of, what, what was that? What, what clicked in your head that said, if this guy's coming at me like this, maybe he's, maybe he's expecting I'm going to come right back at him. Well, I had, at that point, I had nothing to lose. I had a, mm -hmm. another job offer at this point um, going to Red Hat. Uh, which is another story no. in a month itself. Because looking I back, I made I made the wrong decision. But it was like I have nothing left to lose if he's going to come at me with that. At this point, I'm frustrated because I didn't think I was going to have to yep. come back, and yet it's another interview. And so I just kind of gave it back to him, and we spent five minutes talking about work. And then he found out that I used to be a college uh, um, athlete in cross country and track, 
And we spent the rest of the time talking about cross country and track. So, so he found something to relate to. And he, he liked you. He, he, by the time you got to him, John, I mean, he already knew your background and your skill set, right? It was more just of a, if you guys could connect and you did it. Right? And yes. we talk about that a lot. I mean, we'll jump into recruiting later and talent. But when you get to certain senior level conversations, the, the, the folks are already vetted skill set wise when it, could, when it gets to a senior executive. You're, you're seeing if there's a chemistry there. Yes. Well, Unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, he and I got, you know, worked extremely well together, but it only lasted a very short time because six to eight weeks after I joined Dell, he was fired. Um, and um, unfortunately, at, at that point, I thought I was going to go work for another president right away. And he was in Singapore. And that was another interesting Dell moment because he he invited me to come out to Singapore and I said, I'm, I'm glad to meet the new team. And he said, no, you don't understand. The team will be interviewing you because I can literally have anyone in the country be the CIO. Um, so I don't know you and you're going to have to prove that you're the one because before you were Ron's guy, um, needless to say, where I wanted to go with this is, you know, at Vayner, I know it was a short tenure for you, but at Dell at that point in time, it was so chaotic that the average VP was only lasting six months. Um, That's terrible. It's toxic. Yes. So, so where I want to go next is, you know, I listen to Gary Vee um, quite frequently, but what in the world does he like to work for? Yeah, it's a good question. I actually saw him last night at an NFT event in the city. It was cool. Uh, I saw him for about 30 seconds. Uh, said a quick look. Um, this is going to come off interesting. The, the, Gary, the Gary you see, the Gary Vee is what you get. Like he is Truly kind, compassionate. He cares. And I mean, he's scaled and grown so much in the six, seven years since I've worked there, but he still keeps it real. You know, he finds the time to stay in touch with me uh, when he can. You know, we connect a couple of times a year. I mean, I had him on the podcast, um, which was great. But he learned, he talked a lot about, you know, humility. I mean, he learned a lot from my interaction with him about his weaknesses as a leader. Could he have been more candorous in the beginning, right? Could he, and I saw that evolve too over a couple of performance conversations that we had, but he's a real deal. But the thing that really kind of stood out to me is his presence. I had, I was lucky enough to sit in on a couple of business development um, meetings and to watch him work a room and to really just be himself and command attention and just speak off the cuff with such confidence. I mean, that's a big takeaway that I got from him. And the other piece is really care, you know, care is a leader. And that's something I do with my team, you know, really, it sounds so cliche and it sucks that we didn't even have to say this in 2021, but to really lead with care. And that came from my time with Gary, as well as Claude Silver, who, at the, who was currently the chief heart officer, the head of people, uh, AKA. But at the time when I worked there, she was an account lead. But even back then, she really spent a lot of time with me to make sure I had a soft landing, you know, when my time left. And still very close with her as well. So her last Thursday as well, too, at an event. Um, but Gary's a real deal. You know, people talk a lot of smack about him, and that's fine. He's huge in the public eye and he's polarizing. Uh, and he's a brand, he's a presence, but at the end of the day, he's a dad, he's a brother, he's a leader of a company and, and just all around good guy in my eyes. We will be right back to the passion struck podcast. 80 million Americans, both men and women experience thinning hair. It's common, even normal, but it's not openly talked about. So going through it can feel lonely and frustrating. That is why it's so important to take charge of your hair growth and make the next few months your time to grow thicker, fuller, healthier hair with Nutrafol. Don't wait to start addressing early stages of thinning hair. Nutrafol is clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness in just three to six months. I'm already using it and seeing improvements in just a few weeks. And it's physician formulated to be 100% drug-free with potent botanicals to help you grow hair as strong as you are. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and using promo code PASSIONSTRUCK to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer available anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N U T R. A-F-O-L dot com. Promo code PASSIONSTRUCK for hair as strong as you are. 
Thank you so much for listening to and supporting the show. All these codes and URLs can be tough to remember, so we'll put them in the show notes for the episode. Please consider supporting those who support the show and make it possible. Now back to Passion Strike. That's a great backdrop. And I've heard a number of his episodes um, where he talks about that he has spent a lot of time working on some of his own leadership skills, especially hiring and firing um, em- employees because he self-admits he wasn't the best at it. So no. um, it, I mean, I, but I think maybe through your experience and others, um, the great thing about it is he learned and he made changes. Um, yeah. Which, sure. which many leaders won't, won't do. They'll just stick to the course. So I remember um, as you were in your final interview with him, I heard another podcast episode and he gave you some advice that kind of launched you in this new direction that you're in now. What was that? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of, I kind of repeated daily to myself. It's stop focusing on the things that you suck at and double down on your strengths. And it's interesting because we're kind of brought up to always work on our weaknesses. You're not good at math. Let's go double, go to extra help. You're not good at science, you know, work on that. Um, but it wasn't until like that conversation with the light bulb went off in my head on that day that I got like, oh, we sat there for an hour talking and he's like, well, what are you good at? And we started to go through all the things that I'm good at, all my strengths and everything. And it really made me think, you know, why, why am I going to take the time now to really work on my deficiencies in whether it be account management, digital strategy, when I am over indexing and tremendous on relationships and conversationalists and building and fostering those relationships. And that's really what pushed me in the direction of going into recruiting, where I could really capitalize and leverage that experience. You know, that arbitrage between working on things that you suck at and doubling down on things that you're great at is unbelievable. And that's what really projected me into recruiting. So when I got into recruiting, I pivoted into a new career at 35. I did not know anything about the recruiting industry, except for what all those conversations I had with recruiters that I've worked with in the past, but I didn't know what it really meant, the art and science of it until I sat down in that chair, right? So I had to learn technically how to be a recruiter. I thought in my head, from a candidate perspective, I knew what it was like to be a recruiter, but that wasn't even close, right? The, the, the process, the mindset and all that. However, the fact that I had 15 years of marketing background behind me really propelled me as far as how I presented myself out into the marketplace for candidates and clients. The fact that I had 15 years worth of relationships, when I got into the biz dev mode, I was able to call on past contacts. And that was really tremendous. And that was really what propelled me uh, in my first couple of years in the business. Yeah. Well, you know, I have noticed um, since my career started um, that the recruiting business itself is really changing. I remember I had key contacts at Spencer Stewart, Hydric and Struggles, Egon Zender, like I mentioned before, Corn Ferry. Senior consulting, you know, high tech yeah, executive you, search terms. Yep. Yeah, you, you name it. Um, and then about seven or eight years ago, all my contacts started to disappear. And these mm. were people who had grown up their whole careers in recruiting. And they were replaced by other executives, um, but who were coming out of industry who had no recruiting experience. And the the difficulty being on the other side of that is I had a decade plus experience with these other recruiters who knew me, would call me regularly, check in. These new people, it's like in every single firm in multiple offices, you had to establish a completely new track record, but they were were looking at you completely different. can you explain kind of what's going on with the industry right now? Oh, uh, wow. I mean, where do I even start with this one? I, well, let me kind of backtrack on that too. I think the fact that I, I came into recruiting for recruiting for marketing and advertising jobs, having done it for my entire career was a tremendous advantage. I'm like other recruiters coming into industry. I didn't have to learn a new industry. I wasn't coming into recruiting to recruit finance or healthcare and having to learn it. So those roles that I was recruiting for and doing biz dev for, I've been in those roles before. And I could get on the phone with a hiring manager and talk shop get on the phone with a candidate and I could really suss out if they are a skilled marketer. I could ask them the questions that I've asked that I went through in my career. And that was a huge competitive advantage too. But what's happening now, I mean, if we, if we pull back the curtain, if we pull, I'm sorry, if we pull back the lens and we're looking at the 30,000 foot view, the last two years, high level, we have seen the dynamic shift from the candidate slash employee away from the employer. We've seen We've seen this big shift where the employer used to have all the leverage during interviews and the job search because now employees have choice. You don't want to work there? 
fine. There's other jobs open right now. It's all about supply and demand. That's really what it comes down to. Plus the fact that, you know, we've all realized that certain jobs, you can be equally productive working from anywhere versus being in an office for better or worse. Now, yes, listen, there's, you know, some roles, some companies where you should be in an office because of the type of job that you're doing. There's some, some roles like, you know, there's a lot of creative roles where I feel like you need to be in, a, in a, an environment together at least a couple of days a week for that true energy and collaboration. But high level, John, I mean, the dynamic has shifted. The pendulum has swung in a different direction. And now we're going into 2022. Um, it's a candidate driven market where they have choices, they have options. Um, from a hiring perspective, many companies that were very specific as far as where roles could sit geographically have now opened up nationwide. So I love it. I mean, I have roles with clients that would only be in the New York area, for example, and now I could source nationwide for them. And it's opening up an incredible talent pool. And it's opening up candidates that would never, for whatever reason, move to the New York area, but always kind of wanted to work for a New York-based company. It gives them the opportunity to do that. And it's really interesting. There's pros, there's cons. It's a lot of gray area, a lot of things we're figuring out, a lot of polarizing messages out there. And um, it's tough waters to navigate right now. Yeah, well... I, I tell you, if it was me years ago, that would have made a huge difference because mm. I can't even tell you how many countless times I was offered jobs in New York, but I was going to have to move. Yeah. And at the time, we didn't want to raise small kids there. Um, Tough. These jobs that are coming up, are they paying the same New York salary if you're in Oklahoma City? Yeah, it, it, it's an interesting, and that's a whole other conversation too. Um, I'm, I'm on a couple of different sides of the fence on this one. So in some regards... We have companies that are New York based and, you know, they, they'll pay the same salary regardless of where folks are anywhere in the country. That's cool. And then other companies, um, they're looking at it as, you know, there's a reason somebody in New York gets more. It's a cost of living. And I understand both sides of the coin there. However, you know, it, there's some folks that are OK with that. And there's some folks that say, listen, why should you pay me any different? Um, I'm, I'm a little bit on the fence on on on, on this one. I could I, I haven't kind of established a full formed opinion on geographic pay equity. I'm just not there yet. Because I do understand the differences. I mean, what, what are your thoughts? Get ready to supercharge your hiring experience with Indeed, our fantastic partner. We at PassionStruck are all about seeking smarter, more efficient ways to do things. And Indeed perfectly aligns with this philosophy when it comes to hiring. It's more than just a job site. It's a comprehensive platform that revolutionizes the way you find the perfect candidates. With its powerful matching engine and over 350 million global monthly visitors, Indeed streamlines the hiring process, bringing top talent straight to you. No more sifting through endless unqualified resumes. Indeed does the heavy lifting just for you. And what I love about Indeed is its ability to centralize all your hiring activities. From scheduling interviews and screening applicants to messaging candidates, it's all in one place. During my career, I've hired thousands of employees, and I only wish I had Indeed's efficiency and speed back then. And here's a fact that absolutely blows my mind. 93% of employers, according to a recent survey, say Indeed delivers the best quality matches over other job sites. That's quality and speed hand in hand. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Just go to Indeed.com slash PassionStruck right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash PassionStruck. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I know all those discount codes are difficult to remember, so we put them all at PassionStruck.com slash deals. Now, back to PassionStruck. Well, I think I see both sides of it. One, it is much more expensive to live in New York. In fact, that job, same job here in Tampa would probably be $100,000 to $150,000 less. But if you're bringing the performance of the same person who's in the job, regardless of location, shouldn't you get the same pay? Um, yes. But hopefully it will bring up other areas of the country um, because these other areas are going to now have to compete with the rates that people can get especially yeah. as more and more people are getting into freelancing. And, and so, so that's an interesting point too. And that's where the leverage is for companies that are able to just pay the same across the entire country. They have a huge competitive advantage in this job market right now. That is a huge, huge, incredibly huge advantage. I mean, who wouldn't want to go to a company that's paying, you know, prime market rates 
versus like handicapping me because I live in the middle of the country somewhere or a smaller town. Right. And then you have to think about this, too. So much talent. Let's talk about the New York area for a moment during the pandemic. So many people moved out of the city, out to the burbs, upstate New York, to, to other places to escape the pandemic. And they're not coming back. They're happy there. They built new lives. So you're not going to go after the talent anymore? Come on. Now, we've had three financial services companies come into St. Petersburg, where I live. One of them, Dynasty Financial. I spoke to their um, CEO and their head of HR, and I'm like, what made you make the move? And the CEO goes, for the money that I was paying to live on the you know, Upper East Side, yep. I'm now living in a 5,000 square foot house on the water, have That's a horrible. big boat behind me. And yep. he goes, I'm paying everyone the same salaries they were making up in New York. And it, the do- dollar goes so much further down here than it does there. So the whole work-life lifestyle. balance is completely different. And so, and it's a lifestyle change too. I mean, it, we've seen so many changes, so many dynamic changes. We talk about the hiring process. You know, you used to go in for interviews. You'd be there all day in this gauntlet, right? You're talking about before you go in and you meet. You know, you'd be there all afternoon, all morning. You know, you're sitting there waiting. You're in your suit. You know, or you're, you know, you're you're waiting there in the lobby to getting called in. And now it's all virtual. And again, there's pros and cons to that. From one side of it, it makes it easier from a scheduling perspective to get on people's calendars. That's that's been easy. But in my opinion, I think it's tough to do this all the time for interviews. I think for certain roles, unless they're 100% remote, and then it kind of works, where you're missing out on that body language, you're missing that eye contact, you're missing that human connection, that energy, that feel that you get from somebody. Because ultimately, let's say what it is, John, you're able to take a look at a resume and a background and assess pretty quickly if someone on paper has the experience and skills, the hard skills necessary for that job. But the interview is really about their interpersonal skills, their soft skills, trying to determine in 30, 45 minutes, an hour, if someone's character traits, their skills, I mean, their soft skills, right? Are they, are they going to be good for the group here? And I don't use the word culture fit. I think it's a garbage word. Fit is, is not something, but are they going to add? Are they going to be a culture add to the organization? So doing that remotely, does that always work versus face-to-face? So we've seen a lot of things change. It's crazy. No, and, and if you're trying to understand office politics, it's very dif- difficult to do that remotely because it's hard to see body language, how people are looking at each other, who's pointing towards who mm-hmm. and others. So there's also that aspect. Um, well, I thought we could take this a little bit further down this line of career advice. Um, my audience is that kind of 25 to 44 yep. is, is the bulk. Um, and I know a lot of them right now are, are probably like, I don't understand this whole recruiting business at all. So a cu- couple of things I wanted to ask is, um, let's first talk about resumes. Do you have some good advice on do's and don'ts? Yeah. So, so let's start with cover letters because that's a big topic that comes up. Um, I rarely read a cover letter. I've seen too many of them that are literally just, uh, this is a big mistake. People just regurgitate their resume and their experience in their cover letter. And that is, it's hurting you because you're wasting my time. You're not adding anything, right? Now, I think a, res- a cover letter is important if you need to call out a career gap, a transition, something where it might be a red flag to a recruiter or a hiring manager, something that you will want to add context to that may not be in a resume. If you want to talk about time you took out to raise your kids, to travel, to take care of a sick elderly relatives. I'm just you know, giving examples there. That's important. But I've also seen cover letters hurt people also where they're forgetful and they will leave in another company's information in the like two, like instead of dear Adam, and it'll say dear, like the other hiring manager's name or the other company in there. And it's not a, a you know, a, an automatic rejection just based on that. But it's one of those things where you're like, mm, you know, attention to detail, they paying attention to what's going on here. So cover letters, I'd be very mindful of the other big topic that comes up is length, resume length. Um, I don't really have a hard and fast rule to this. I think it's more about if you're able to succinctly confidently tell your career story and your accomplishments, it doesn't need to be in a million pages. You don't need to list every single thing. And I think it needs to be relevant to the job that you're applying for. I think job seekers really need to be mindful about customizing their resume. And I'm not saying look at the job description and copy exactly that into your resume, but, and especially if it's not relevant or if you don't have that experience, never lie on your resume, but use that as an indicator. If I'm the hiring manager and I'm looking for XYZ skill set and you have that, but it's not called out prominently in your most recent role, 
then edit it in. Customize your resume. Put the time in. What does that take? 15, 20 minutes for a job that you're actually interested in? Um, so I think that's critically important. The other piece, too, is to quantify your results and talk about the ownership of that program or project that you did. I ran this program or I was, you know, talk about your role there and what you accomplished and what you did. I want, I want to read what you did, right? I don't want to just read, you know, shuffled papers. I want, to, I want to read about like what came out of that. What was your role in that? That's important. Uh, I think that there needs to be some better guidance in that regard. There's a lot of misinformation out there uh, when it comes to resumes, but the key to keep in mind is the end user reading it. What do you want them to know about you and your experience? Just switch, switch your, just be mindful of the, the end user. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate your advice on cover letters because personally I try to avoid them at all costs because I think they can do oftentimes more harm than good. Uh, the only time it ever worked for me, um, kind of along your advice, is I got the job at Lowe's because I researched um, the gentleman who was the chief operating officer, and I loved doing home repairs. And so I wrote mm. him a very personal cover letter that was directed to him, acknowledging um, his 36 years and going from mailroom clerk to being the COO. And then I went into why I loved Lowe's so much. And it just so happens that his brother um, was the CIO. He handed the resume to him. Literally a week later, I got a call and I was hired about two weeks later after that. But Well, that's I mean, when it could work in your favor, right? I mean, that's another piece too. If you're going to do a, a cover letter, like, you know, I mean, it also depends, John, let's be honest about what level, what level you're at, right? Like what the type of role is. But I, I've seen them do more. I've seen them either be irrelevant or just do harm. Very rarely, yeah. you know, if, if someone sends me a cover letter, um, I, I honestly, I don't even get many cover letters these days, nor do my, do my companies that I work for ask for one in the application process. I think that's something that's kind of going out, out the window because you could also do that in an upfront email too, right? You know, the email has really re replaced, I mean, cover letters are ancient, right? Like people would yeah. literally cover letter. It would be a letter attached to your physical resume that people mailed. Now it's an email, right? So you could take the same opportunity in email to convey it properly. I agree. Uh, now, the other thing I find really uh, interesting is for years and years and years, I've never, I never saw a picture on a resume. And now I'm seeing pictures on all these resumes. And I, and I don't like it uh, personally because I think we all have hidden biases. And it's, gonna, it's like submitting a book proposal and putting a book cover there. Um, you're taking a chance because the book agent Literary, literary agent may absolutely detest the book cover and think, you, you know, this writer is not going to be pliable and wanting another cover. And I think the same thing could be said with a picture, but would like to get your thoughts. Yeah, I know. I completely agree with you. I'm 100% against having a photo on the resume because uh, there's there's bias there. There's 100% bias. Here. And I talk about bias a lot too. Um, I talk about early in my career that, we, first of all, let's, let's all be honest here. All of us, it's okay. We're human. We all have unconscious biases to some degree, just by nature, by nurture, the way we're brought up, the environment where we live. We have unconscious biases. The first step in working towards reducing unconscious biases or to be aware of what your biases were are. I went through an exercise a couple of years ago with one of my clients where they were able to, because I was reviewing resumes through an ATS system, and they were able to quantify with data resumes that I passed on based on names. And I had a slight bias towards rejecting certain names that sounded foreign. And I admit that. I mean, it's something that it was unconscious, but the numbers didn't lie. And it wasn't like overly skewing to any kind of extreme point, but it was something that I had to take notice on. And, and then at that moment, I was able to say, okay, well, here's a bias. And now I'm conscious of that unconscious bias and able to properly evaluate and think about it as future resumes came through. So I think you take away the, 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 the photos for sure. I mean, the same thing can be said on LinkedIn too. I, mean, I look at almost every candidate that I want to move through on LinkedIn to see what their LinkedIn presence is right? For better or worse. I think that's important too, but you just have to be mindful of your biases, uh, especially as a recruiter and a hiring manager. Yeah. And probably one more question on the resume. And then sure. that's exactly where I wanted to go is to LinkedIn. Um, so if you if you are, regardless of your age, someone who wants to approach a recruiter that they don't know and who doesn't know them, what are some of the best ways that you can connect with them. And if you're sending an email to a recruiter, 
what would you do and not do? Yeah. So I, here, here's the thing, because I'm very empathetic towards candidates out there. I've been in their shoes many times. I mean, I've been laid off, you know, four times in my career before recruiting. I've been unemployed for as long as seven, eight months at one point, uh, really struggling in the job search. So I get it. I understand emotionally what it's like to be a job seeker. However, as a job seeker, it's your job to own your job search process. The job search is the hardest job you're ever going to have. I mean, you know that as much as I do, John, it's the hardest work that you're ever going to have. It's going to be the most stressful because it's the most emotional, especially if you're out of work. So now think about it. You're reaching out to a bunch of different recruiters out there. The thing I could tell you first and foremost that pisses me off about job seekers is when people reach out to me and they didn't, and they're irrelevant to what I recruit for. All of my information is on my website. All of my information, what I do, what I specialize in is on my LinkedIn page. And if you can't take a second to take a look and see that I specialize in marketing, media, or advertising and reach out to me blindly, if you're something completely irrelevant, that upsets me because that means you're not mindful of my time and you're almost putting the onus on me to say, wait a minute, this isn't relevant. Let me get back to you. Like that, that just, that's just not being respectful of other people's time. So I think the first thing is relevance. The second thing is, if you are relevant to what I do, take a, take a look at my open jobs, right? Take a look at my open jobs first and see if any of those are relevant. Be conscious of my time. We don't need to be best friends. This is a transactional relationship. I'm trying to help you out. I think that's really important too. Um, and I think it's also important to understand the recruiting relationship. So I what I do is I, I am I am a independent recruiter that represents companies. I don't represent candidates in the marketplace. I am not a true executive recruiter where candidates are coming to me. My clients pay me to fill open positions for them. So I represent my clients in the marketplace. So this isn't really a knock on candidates because a lot of them just don't know it. And that's totally fair. But I always try to explain to candidates that like they want me to represent them. Like if you came to me, John, you're like, hey, I'm looking for a new role. I would say to you, hey, listen, that's awesome. I could certainly point you in the right direction. But I, am, I don't represent forwardly and go out and, and say, hey, John, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go shop you around in the marketplace. And I think it's important for candidates to understand, are they an internal recruiter? Are they an external recruiter? Are they a contract recruiter? Are they an executive search recruiter? And understanding what each one of their, those type of recruiters' relationships are within the industry, within their clients, and within candidates. Yeah, and I think the other thing to pay attention to, um, and I'll, I'll tell this in a, in a great story, is I, I have a friend who, uh, he retired now, but he was an extremely successful uh, recruiter but he was extremely successful because he was micro-focused. He was construction nice. industry and he only did two or three different jobs, but mm -hmm. the guy's work ethic was unbelievable. He would do a hundred phone calls a day, yeah. um, half of them to companies and half of them to people. And he said some days he could, he could get through them and it would be two o'clock in the afternoon. He goes, some days it would be midnight. But mm -hmm. he said for 20 years, that's what he did. But Work he said through through doing that and being that micro-focused, um, he learned who was really researching him and was coming to him because they knew who, who he was and what he could offer. And I think sometimes, to your point, it's the same with recruiters. You got to understand you know, what industry are they in and what niche are they in. Spend the time. It takes two seconds. You can look at my profile. I literally have it listed there of what I do in like the first line. So before you reach out blindly, you know, take a minute to do your research. And that's it when it comes to job interviews. And, and this is a double-edged sword. If if I am if I am reaching out to a passive candidate, this means a passive candidate means somebody that uh, did not apply to the job. I am recruiting them. I'm trying to get them. Um, I have a little bit more bandwidth by the time the interview comes, if they didn't have the time and they didn't put in the research to the company, because I'm, I'm, I'm asking them, but if you apply to a job and you don't do the proper research before an interview, that's, that's a double red flag right there in my book, put in the time. Cause you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And you want to be okay. prepared with questions. The biggest regret that I've seen from job seekers are the ones where I have good conversations with them and they didn't think they needed to research. They think they, they, they knew all about it already. And then at the end, like, damn, I wish I really like put in the time because now after talking to you, I really like what I'm hearing here. You know, they kick themselves for not doing the work up front. Okay. I think that's great advice. Um, so one other piece before we go into LinkedIn question just popped in my head is how about salary? Um, because mm -hmm. I was always taught by my father, you know, never bring up compensation. Don't get into that. Delay it, delay it, delay it. But sometimes nope. I wonder if it's better it's kind of like going on a 
dating site. And if you're not completely honest, when yeah. it comes to the end, you're going to have a mismatch. Is it better to let the recruiter or the company know up front what your expectations are? Or I won't move. I I won't move somebody to the next round unless we talk compensation. And the reason being twofold. One, I want to be conscious of your time and my time. The last thing I'm going to do is get to the finish line and we're off so much on salary that it's a, it's a non-starter. Who, what good does that do for anybody? My, my, my client's excited. The company's excited about hiring you. You're excited about the role. I always have this conversation at the end of every first phone call. And here's how I set that up. I'll be like, John, you know, we'll get to the point of the conversation. All right, let's talk shop around compensation goals here. I'm not looking to negotiate with you right now. I'm not looking to pigeonhole you. I'm not looking to lock you into anything. But what I want to do, John, right now is get an understanding compensation-wise, arrange where you need to be to consider making a move and see if we're in the same universe here. Some candidates will tell me their range. Some candidates will tell me what they're currently making. I will never ask what somebody's currently making. You can't do that in many states across the country. And then I have other candidates that'll push back and say either, hey, um, you know, that's something I'd rather wait till we get further down the line. And then I'll do my little speech again about talking about it now. Um, or we'll have a conversation around their compensation goals being too high. And I'll say, listen, I'll be straight up with you. I know the budget for this role. I know that there isn't a wiggle room there. We are too far off on this one. I want to thank you for your time. Now, two things are going to happen when I say that. One, they're going to say, okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Or they'll come back down to earth because rightfully so, every job candidate, every candidate should push for as high as it could get. Why wouldn't you play that arbitrage game? This is your opportunity to make a jump, but I'm going to be truthful with you. I'm going to tell you if you're in that range or not. And we'll go from there. And, and does a company ever put out their best offer right away? Because... My son is 23 now. He just uh, got a job offer for a company and he was going to accept it. And I go, Josh, rule one of job search is you always negotiate. And he goes, really? And I'm like, you've got to. Yeah, They're expecting it. But I wanted to get your, your thoughts. Yeah. So th there's a couple of things here. One, yeah, generally speaking, yes, that's kind of the rule there too. And I think a lot of companies kind of have... Um, depending on the level, there is a little bit of wiggle room because they, they think they know that every can good candidate is going to negotiate. But I've also, and this is actually pretty cool. I've worked with some companies where they are one and done. This is our offer. This is our best possible offer. But when they make that offer, it's always above the candidate ask. Say you're looking for 125. They can say, John, we'd love to have you on board here. We'd love to offer you 140 for this role. This is final and firm. This is our strongest possible offer. And, and the recruiter keeps the company in line. The team keeps the company in line. I mean, this is what we're talking about here. But you're showing the candidate that you want them more than what they're asking for. We don't like to negotiate here. We're just going to come to you with our best offer. And it's, a, and it's a take it or leave it. And I've seen that work really well too. And it's a lot smoother, more organic conversation than saying take it or leave it. I don't mean it as firm as that. But when you get to that point of the conversation, we're talking about, you know, how much we want them, they want us, and it's just closing the deal. And I've seen that work really well, but the whole hiring team needs to be on board with that mindset. Otherwise, it's more the traditional negotiation. Yeah. Don't you wish that's what happened when you went to go buy a car? Adam, yeah. we want you in this BMW so much. Yeah. We're going to drop the price for you by $5,000. I, I, that, yeah. I mean, that's, it, 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 it never works. I mean, the majority of the cases you're, you're negotiating. Um, but you also have to understand, I think there's another tough part. It's kind of the weird thing too. Um, people come from different salary histories, right? I could be a director coming in from one company that paid me really well at 150, or I could be a director coming in from a company that I was at 125 at, right? So you come into a new company and you're going for that VP title. It's hard to kind of level set. And it bothers me when, 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 when certain hiring managers are like, I don't think that person's worth it. What are you gauging that against? What is your value of their compensation worth? And what they're doing is a lot of times they're saying, oh, well, I have somebody in this company who's at this salary already, who I think might be more experienced than that person. Why would I pay that person more? Because you freaking have to, if you want to get them. It's a cost of doing business. It's, a, it's crazy, man. It's a whole, it's a mind F. Yep, it definitely is. So let's switch gears to LinkedIn. So it's kind of the same question as the, the resume. What are some of, the do's and don'ts about creating a LinkedIn profile, because I know you probably can tell within 10, 15 seconds, a good one versus a bad one. 
Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, let's pause there. I don't hold it against a job seeker if they do not have a strong LinkedIn profile. That's not the end all be all. Not everyone is present on LinkedIn. Not everyone is, you know, on LinkedIn all the time like I am. And not everyone cares. You don't have to be right. But if you are going to put the time in again, you know, it's kind of like this, you you know, your, 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 your LinkedIn is your, is your billboard, is your advertisement for your career, for yourself, for your brand. Your resume is, is that data set right? Is, is the proof and point there. So how are you going to make it shine? Right. And I, and I think it's good on, on LinkedIn, if you're a job seeker to really use it as an opportunity to showcase your thought leadership. And you could do that a few different ways. Simple way to do that is to repost articles relevant to your industry and put your point of view and spin in the body copy on the top. Like I'm sharing an article on what's happening in digital marketing right now. Here's my thoughts on this. Maybe I agree with the author. Maybe I disagree. Maybe I have a, I have a counterpoint you know, a different angle to come at that. Now, if I'm a recruiter and I see that, I'd be, wow, this person is interested, really cares about their industry. Like they're really like a student of the game and they're intellectually curious. I mean, I think curiosity is one of the most attractable traits of any candidate, in my opinion, you know, insatiable curiosity. Uh, and it could really help you stand out. Could it hurt you? I don't think so. I never, I never ding a candidate again who, who has a poor LinkedIn profile, but I think it's important, you know, to keep it professionally personal or personally professional, however way you want to kind of play that. I think it's important to infuse your, your character, your personality. Um, I'm strongly against getting into anything political or religious on LinkedIn. It's just not my thing. And it, I mean, personally across any social media, I've, I've learned my lesson early on, right? It's just not worth it. Like, you know, getting into, into political or religious battles with anybody, um, but use it as an opportunity. Absolutely. Okay. And how, how about the summary space? Would you tend to use that all up? Would you do something sh- short? What, what's your advice there? I mean, it really depends what your objective is. I have a lot, for me, I have a lot of information to share because it's my business also, right? Like I talk about who I am, what I do. And then I'm talking about NHP Talent Group from a recruiting perspective. I'm talking about the podcast, the podcast from the content perspective. And I have all my contact links within there. But if you're a job seeker, I would use it to really summarize who you are and what you do and what you're looking for if you're on the open market and, and make it personal, make it fun, make it something lively that's going to kind of showcase who you are, right? Give me a sense. Give me a taste of your, of your, of your, uh, of, of your personality. I think that's a great opportunity there. Okay. And do you think things like videos are, are things that candidates should do or do you uh, shy away from them? If you feel comfortable, why not? If, if I could click on a video of you and you're talking about yourself and it gives me a sense, I mean, that's going to get me excited. That's going to get a hiring manager excited, especially in this digital remote world that we're in right now, where you may not have an opportunity to meet somebody face to face. Okay. Um, okay. So let's go from the whole career topic and spend some time talking about podcasting. Oh, yeah. So, so I happened to listen to an episode that you did with Jordan Harbinger. Mm. And great, great job interviewing. Um, I want to have him on the show, but he wants That's me great. to pay to have him on the show. So I'm well, it's, not- a, it's a, it's a donate. It's a donation. You're not paying him exactly donation. Um, but one of the things I thought was you asked him what his advice was for podcasting and his advice was don't do it, yeah. which I thought was pretty funny given that's where he makes his living. But, um, you know, you got in this game earlier than I did. I just got in the game February of, of 2021 and a whole bunch of people tried to talk me out of it. Um, um, and it is a lot of work because there are 2.6 million other podcasts mm-hmm. out there that people can be listening to. But I don't know about you, but for me, it's it's become a great lead generation, um, you know, not only for potential customers and business, but, but for also getting additional great guests on the show. So what, what, you know, what got you into it originally? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of crazy. So as I alluded to in the beginning of the podcast, I've been a lifelong Howard Stern fan, uh, growing up in New York. I, I listened to him on terrestrial radio back in the, in the Howard Stern that a lot of people know about the, the raunchy Howard Stern, um, but then he moved over to Sirius Satellite Radio in 2005, and I started working there in 2006. Big reason why I went over there is to follow him, um, which is awesome to watch that growth, by the way. But when Howard went over from terrestrial radio to satellite radio, it gave him an incredibly different platform where previously on terrestrial radio, he would have to take his 20-minute breaks. But now he had an open canvas to have 
really long form conversations. And that's when Howard really matured as a host and an interviewer to be this, in my opinion, the best interviewer on the face of the earth. Possibly. I mean, he's incredible. And I don't know if, if you listen to him or anything, but his style of interviewing is a conversation. And it's to not talk about the, the same things that every guest will talk about. I mean, he's got movie stars, celebrities, everyone you can think about. And he really digs into their personal stories. I mean, I talk about there's one podcast that's really stood out to me with, with Hillary Clinton, um, Lover or Hater. But he, he did two, two really interesting things there. One, he brought up the Bill and Hillary Clinton love story, which I've never heard before. And it really helped to, to humanize her. I didn't know how Bill and Hillary met their love story. And it brought out her emotional side. And then he literally segued the conversation into her. She admitting that she probably should have came on his show during the election. And she probably would have related to a lot more people. I mean, Howard has millions of listeners. We know how close that election was. I mean, it could have swayed a different direction. Right. But to have that conversation with somebody to get that out of them, to admit that they should have done something because he brought that out of them. That's insane. Right. So that's kind of like really the way I model. I really want to have a conversation with guests and, and really dig into um, go down, you know, rabbit holes and, and go off topic. I mean, listen, I do a lot of preparation for my shows. I have a direction. I have a flow. But, you know, after doing, you know, 200, almost 200 podcasts and 100 live shows, I built up this muscle memory where I feel confident and have the skill set. If I hear something from a guest that's interesting to just go in that direction and be able to pull it back and get back on track to finish the show I want to. So, I mean, that's kind of like my podcasting uh, journey there, but it didn't start out that way. You know, it started out with an itch that I needed to scratch. Going back to your question, where I've always kind of had this bug to be a broadcaster. And I listened to a couple of shows around talent and HR, and I said, you know what? I could do that better. And now, three years later, I got this cool mic microphone in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, are there... Um like on this whole topic, I think I listen to some of these podcasts. I've been interviewed on some of them and I think people have a natural knack for it and asking questions. And I think other people, and I'm sure you've felt this, it's, it's almost uncomfortable to be on it because some of the questioning that they're giving you is so awkward. And oftentimes they haven't even done any research on, on me as the guest. <laughs> You know, and anyone I bring on my show, I'm sure you're similar. You know, I've, I've already listened to about 10 of your podcasts. I've read articles from you. Yes. You, you, you put in the work. Yes. Um, so I would tell a listener out there, you know, if you're not extremely passionate about doing it, think twice because, it work. because it takes a lot more work than you're ever going to expect, especially if you're putting out a couple episodes a week. And you have to be religious about it because um, it's, it's a long, it's playing the long game, which 100%. I want to get to, because I know you like that advice, but it's, it's really, you can't expect short-term results because it's, no. it's like, it's like interest. It's compounding. Of course, especially unless you're a celebrity or an athlete or have a built-in, you know, social media kind of presence. You think, you think you're going to launch a podcast and you're going to have a, a, like thousands of listeners you know, I, I didn't break I didn't break a thousand listeners per show until a year and a half into the show. Like it took time and it takes work there too. one quick funny story going back to the, the guest research. I was on a show. I'm not going to name it, obviously, uh, within the last year. And the guest, you know, was kind of leading me in and telling my story and background and everything. And I'm like, you know, I, and then I went over to work at Vanya Media for Gary V and goes, wait, you worked for Gary V? <laughs> and I, I literally almost walked away from the interview. I'm like, did you not even do an ounce of preparation? Like that, that, like that's my that's that's my jam. I mean, that's that's like a cornerstone chapter in my book of life, right? Like, like you didn't do your research. You call yourself a freaking host? Get out of here, man! I'm wasting my time. Well, I I know your show, like mine, we are trying to bring on as top talent as you can, and so with that comes a level of respect. To to your point, right on, because. If someone's been on 20, 30 different podcasts, I don't want them to do the same episode on mine. So I listen to what they've said, and then I try to take them down a completely different interview mm -hmm. track so that it's unique. Um, but a lot of shows don't do that. You just hear the same thing over and over. Now, I, yeah. you, you brought up Howard Stern as being like one of the best interviewers. I think Larry King is one of the worst. I remember <laughs> when he interviewed Seinfeld. He doesn't do any like, prep, by the way. No, he, he said to Seinfeld... 
he goes, how do you feel about your show getting canceled? He goes, I had the top producing show ever and decided to walk away from it. Larry, did you even do any research? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, Larry, Larry King just got, I mean, but he, he was kind of always like, that's funny. Cause uh, I asked Gary V and he actually liked Larry King as an interviewer because it makes sense. Cause Gary doesn't do a ton of preparation. He goes off intuition and feel uh, and, what, and what people around him uh, tell him, but you have to do the work. I mean, I mean, listen, I I'm in the process now of finalizing a course I put together the pause course, which is really meant to teach people how to build a B to B to C podcast to generate business development opportunities. Because that's what my show did organically over the last three years. I reached out to guests who are decision makers at companies that I want to work with. And I built relationships with them. I had them on the show and hour long conversations with them. I connected human to human. And then it wasn't until afterwards where I either pitched my business and services or the conversation organically happened. And it's funny too, the sign actually helps me because at the end of the show, when we hang up and the guests, oh, by the way, what's NHP? Is that that? You know, and they go, oh, that's my business. These are my daughter's initials. Get some all emotional, not by design. Right. And they relate. And then we start to talk shop. And then before you know it, they're being converted into a client and we have a real relationship. It's the magic of podcasting. Okay. okay so since you opened that door right there, yeah, how, do pe- how, do people, how do people contact you? <laughs> yeah, uh, sure. Actually, you can find me on LinkedIn, Adam J. Posner. You can find the podcast at thepodcast.com and all recruiting needs at nhptalentgroup.com. Yeah, thought I'd just let you do it there since you introduced it so brilliantly. And that's another funny thing too. I think that I, I mean, I was taught by my media coach too. And, and the listen, we're all here to promote something and build audience, you know, exchange and everything too. I've had, I've had, I've had guests. I've had, I've been a guest on shows where the the host doesn't wrap it up properly and and ask me the same question. It's just a respect thing, you know. I always end it like and when you when you're on my show next week, I'm like, John, where can people find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? And I'll also have the links that you provided and I'll talk about it when I close the show. You know, find this podcast here, book here. Like that's part of the game. There's a structure there. Like, do you do the work? Be a pro. Well, I couldn't say it any better. Um, so I want to end by just asking you a couple of fun questions. Um, so one of them is. Why is the long game so important? It's the only game. Um, I, I cannot even fathom living in, in a short-term transactional world. Every success that I have is predicated on a long-term relationship, adding mutual value to someone else. right? And I think it's okay if you're upfront with people that it's going to be a true. You don't have to be best friends with everybody. That's not what I'm saying at all. But being honest and true and authentic in your intentions and clear with people and sticking to your word. I mean, that's what I built my business and my career on. You know, that's the reputation I have. Uh, and in today's world of me, 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 on demand, look at me now, short-term transactions, um, it just doesn't sit with me and it doesn't work. And I've shown, you know, turning 43, you know, next year, early next year, like it's paying off. All the time and relationships are paying off. All those seeds that I've planted for the last 20 years working professionally, water them, fertilize them. They're harvest. It's harvest season. And that's what it's yeah. all about. Well, Gary V has some things I agree with and disagree with. One thing I agree with him is patience, which is mm-hmm. exactly what the long game is. Um, who are the f- your favorite two or three guests that you've ever had on your show? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, my my favorite, I mean, aside from my daughter, who I've had on a couple of times, she's always my favorite guest for many reasons. She's actually a great guest, just real authentic. You know, she's just charismatic and i do a show with her every year i'm going to be doing at the end of december our, our year-end show be a third year in a row that i do my final live i do a live show with her and i bring on like 10 of my favorite guests for 15 minutes and just talk to her and me it's pretty cool but um matt higgins uh who's actually uh the other uh he's gary v's partner in vayner media he's one of my favorite favorite guests uh i've had on um and recently i had leanne hornsey who is the chief people officer at uh, Palo Alto Networks. I had her on a couple of weeks ago. The show didn't air yet. Just an absolutely incredible conversation about people hiring, talent, interviewing. Um, I've had some really emotional shows. You know, uh, Staff Sergeant Travis Mills, uh, United States Army, uh, one of the few surviving quadriplegics. Just a tremendous guest. Yeah, I know who he is. 
Yeah, he he he's fantastic. And I mean, I've had some great shows. Uh, uh Dave Laundromat, Millionaire Mentz. Uh, I had him on recently, and we just connected, and it was a conversation. I mean, I literally put my notes down, and we just talked. That's when I know it's a good show. When I don't even look down at my notes, and next thing I know, I'm looking at my at my time, and I'm like, yeah, it's time time to wrap it up. Well, kind of what's happening here because I've been <laughs> looking at my notes once. Uh, um, who is, I know we all have this list of if we could get anyone on the show, who would you want to have? Yeah, I mean, th- there's a few of them. I'd love to have Mike Tyson on the show. I'd love to talk about his career. Um, I would love to have, strangely enough, I'd love to have Madonna on the show. I mean, I'm not a huge like Madonna fan, but I think her career and longevity and transforming herself um, is incredible. You know, she, she's someone I would really like to, to have a conversation with. Um, I think Mark Cuban would be cool. I actually have somewhat access to him, which I should probably work on a little bit. Um, I think Mark Cuban, I think his, his story, his journey is, is pretty cool there too. Um, but ultimately for me, I just love to tell a good story and unpack a journey. It doesn't even have to be somebody famous. You know, I have some guests coming up on the show who are not household names, and I'm pretty confident they're going to be some pretty damn good stories. Okay. And I will, I will end on this question. Um, do you have a personal motto or slogan that you go by uh, and how has that impacted your life? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I, and I'll, I'll talk about a work one and, and it's really plan your work and work your plan, plan your work and work your plan. And that's what keeps me focused and disciplined. I mean, I, I spin plates in my job and my life, my career, you know, and my job is not myopic. There's a lot of things happening at once and I need to stay focused, especially with my type of brain that's just going a million miles an hour with ideas. So my first day of recruiting, first day in the business, my mentor, my, my boss at the time, Tom Hall, before I even turned on my computer, before I even started recruiting day one, he said, plan your work and work your plan. Go in every day. And I do it on a post-it note every single day. And if I get through all of them, awesome, tear it up, throw it out. And if I don't, at least I know why. Because listen, curveballs come right and left all day, but at least I'm focused and I know what I got to do. And I keep that in front of me and I apply that really to life. Plan your work that, and work your plan. That's your great advice. Um, I use the Ivy Lee method. So every night I come up with the five priorities for the next day. And you just tackle them in order. And if you don't get to one, it becomes the number one priority the next day. Yep. I mean, I mean, I, I, I do that. I mean, I, I go through mounds of post-it notes, but I do mine in the morning when I, when I start fresh. And then I also close it out at the end of the day. Yeah, and then it starts, a new pay, it starts a new one. Like, so I started this one this morning, but it's off the one that I crumbled up when I came in from yesterday. So I continue and I cross it off. And it's just a method and it keeps me organized. Everyone has their own method. And, but some people, I mean, some people kind of work kind of off the cuff, but not me. I need to be a, a little bit organized. Okay. Well, Adam, <laughs> uh, Adam Posner, thank you so much for being on the show and what great advice you gave for the audience today. Thank you so much. John, thanks so much for having me, man. And thank you to your audience for listening. What an excellent interview that was with Adam Posner. And I was so happy that he came on the show and especially liked his advice about the long game and his advice all around career resume writing, do's and don'ts, all that. And I would highly encourage all of you who haven't checked out his show, Podcast is a great podcast if you're looking for career development. Now I want to use this opportunity to highlight one of the fans of the week. And this fan is coming to you from the United States. It's Abdel Kirin, who writes, amazing show. This podcast is not for the faint of heart because he will force you into uncomfortable spaces as he challenges you to go within yourself to address your weaknesses. Abdil, thank you so much for taking the time to rate the podcast and for that great feedback. And that is something we absolutely are trying to do with this show, both through our Momentum Friday solo episodes, where I try to talk about topics that get you to move from being stuck to becoming passion struck, along with our interviews. And thank you so much all of you for helping us break over 1,900 five-star ratings on the show along our way of trying to hit 2,000 by the end of the year. Now, go out there yourself and become passion struck. Thank you so much for joining us. The purpose of our show is to make passion go viral. And we do that by sharing with you the knowledge and skills that you need to unlock your hidden potential. If you want to hear more, please subscribe to the Passion Struck podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts at. And if you absolutely love this episode, we'd appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes 
and you sharing it with three of your most growth-minded friends so they can post it as well to their social accounts and help us grow our Passion Start community. If you'd like to learn more about the show and our mission, you can go to passionstruck.com where you can sign up for our, our newsletter, look at our tools, and also download the show notes for today's episode. Additionally, you can listen to us every Tuesday and Friday for even more inspiring content. And remember, make a choice, work hard, and step into your sharp edges. Thank you again for joining us. 